Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I'm with Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. As part of Sunshine Week, Trevor has been looking at open records and meetings bills moving through the legislature. But he recently reported on a bill that is unlikely to pass this year. Trevor, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, so many people aren't aware, but the legislature is not subject to the state's Open Records and Meetings Act. That's because they carved out a specific exemption several years ago, um, specifically for themselves. It's a blanket exemption. Um, so there's a bill that would sought to change that, would just essentially remove that exemption and put the legislature um, subject to the Open Records and Meetings Act. And uh, so what's happened to the bill this year? Yeah, so the bill looks like it's dead at this point. Um, it did not meet, make it out of committee uh, by a key cutoff date earlier this month. Um, the bill was not even given a committee hearing or vote, so that means you know, unless there's some unforeseen circumstances, um, this measure is dead without even getting a debate this year. And is that unusual? Is this something our legislature uh, has debated before? Well, they've definitely taken up this measure before, but they haven't really debated it too much. Um, I was going through the records and, uh, you know, almost every year, or every couple years, there's a bill, um, sometimes from Republicans, sometimes from Democrats, um, I think the last time it got a committee hearing was in 2015, and it did not get a House floor vote at that time. Right. Well, is uh, Oklahoma an, an outlier when it comes to uh, that kind of legislative transparency? Yeah, Oklahoma actually um, ranks among the least transparent states in um, several rankings. Um, that's because Oklahoma is one of three or four states now that um, have a blanket exemption for these type of things. There's several other states with, um, you know, carve-outs and things that the public and the media can request and cannot request. But Oklahoma is pretty, um, it's kind of an outlier in that there's this blanket exemption and the fact that it hasn't been challenged or been debated um, in recent years, it's kind of unusual based on the direction that other states are going, kind of moving towards transparency. What do uh, some transparency advocates say about proposals to subject the legislature to the Open Meetings and Open Record Acts? Yeah, so this is something that um, a lot of open meeting advocates and transparency advocates have, have talked about for years. Um, you know, they say that, you know, the, the best public policy happens when it's out in the open. Public can have, you know, a say. They can see what's going on. You know, um, I talked with Joey Sennett. He's the um, associate uh, professor at Oklahoma State University. And, you know, he said that, you know, when anyone in power is able to keep it in secret, that kind of, you know, breeds opportunity for corruption, for, um, you know, things to go behind the scenes that are not always up and up. And it's just usually better, you know, they argue, for the public to have, you know, a full, you know, full look at how bills are developed, how lawmakers are interacting with each other, and then how public policy and 
you know, multi-billion dollar budget bills are, are passed and debated. So what are what are some of the records that uh, the state's able to keep secret because of that exemption? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot. Um, so anything, you know, such as um, lawmakers communications with lobbyists, um, bill drafts, you know, model legislation that they might have used from public policy groups or other states, um, you know, if they're subject to the Open Records uh, Act, the media or the public can request that information. Um, you know, things like also call logs, schedules, um, you know, there's a, there's a wide list of things that, that would be um, open to inspection that are not currently. And that's not just uh, reporters that can inspect that, right? Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, this, this is the public meeting, public records. Um, this is not just um, saying what the media can and cannot see. Um, you know, the public has afforded all the opportunities under these laws that they you know, the media is that we've reported on things in the past where, you know, everyday citizens said to use the Open Records and Open Meetings Act to, you know, see the the government's business, which is, you know, business that they're funding through their taxes. All right. Well, this also applies to open meetings, right? So what about that side of it? Yeah. So there's been some debate over the years. Um, you know, lawmakers sometimes go into caucus retreats. Um, there's a few notable instances in the past, and that's, you know, when, you know, the Republican House members or Democratic House members kind of go into a closed room, they put a sign on, no one's allowed here. Um, sometimes they, you know, talk about bills, they even vote. Um, those type of things would not be permitted for other governing bodies like city council. You know, they can't have a quorum and meet and take an official action. But, you know, it's, it's something that happens pretty frequently at the, the Capitol. Well, clearly, you know, the, the legislature hasn't uh, let any proposals to change that go anywhere. So uh, there's support for keeping it the way it is. What did the supporters say? Yeah, so they're not saying too much. Um, you know, I reached out to a lot of legislative leaders and the uh, committee chairman who uh, could have decided to hear this bill this year. Um, none of them got back to Oklahoma Watch for the story in the past this not uncommon. This is an issue. Um, I was talking to some experts that if you're on the other side of the debate, you really don't want to talk about too much because it's hard to defend your position when you're talking about transparency. There is a Sooner poll out several years ago where 85% of Oklahomans um, supported having the legislature subject to these these laws. So it's, you know, they make the argument it's once you have the power you don't want to, you know, see the power. Right. And what are the chances of something like that passing uh, next year or sometime down the road? Yeah. So I talked to some experts and their, you know, hopes are not too high unless things change. You know, they say this is something that has to kind of maybe spark from the grassroots. You know, this could be something where a ballot initiative could could change it. Or, you know, if there's, you know, big pressure from um, advocacy groups and the media and, government transparency advocates, you know, they could push the needle on this, but right now not many people are talking about it. So it's it's not too hard for the legislature to ignore it and move on to other topics. Okay. Don't the House and the Senate have their own rules that uh, require them to kind of mirror the open meetings and open records acts? Yeah, they have some, um, you know, if there there's, you know, if there's, um, if you're dealing with public money, how the legislature and legislative staff use money. There's there's some provisions there, um, but there's been um, audits that 
The Associated Press has done, for example, in the past where they requested um, calendars and other information from legislative leaders, and they were turned down citing the exemption of the Open Records Act. All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. You can read uh, Trevor's work on this topic and uh, others related to democracy at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. And in his most recent Justice Watch newsletter, Keaton examined why most lethal injection records are exempt from the state's open records laws. Keaton, what lethal injection drug records are exempt from those laws? Several. uh, Who manufactured the drugs, how much the state paid, what the records that show the the state verified the drugs for, you know, they got what what they need per their protocol. Um, All of those records are exempt. And what's the rationale behind those secrecy provisions? So 10 to 15 years ago, uh, several of the drug manufacturers that supplied U.S. states with lethal injection drugs, many of them based in Europe, stopped supplying those drugs out of ethical concerns. Um, so states, in, in a rush to get those drugs, wanted to provide manufacturer, manufacturers with anonymity, um, and that's where those exemptions were born. Has access to lethal injection drug records always been restricted like that? No, these these secrecy provisions came as the the supplies were limited because of of the ethical concerns in places like Europe. So uh, the access hasn't always been this restricted. So why do we why do we care? What kind of information could the public be missing out on there? So the public could be missing out on information such as the expiration date of the drugs, and that's a concern. Uh, several pharmacolo- pharmacology experts have expressed in academic papers and in interviews that if a state uses an expired drug, that could cause the execution to go awry. I believe that happened in, in North Dakota, as an example. They used an expired dose of pentobarbital, and it caused the execution to go south. So that's a primary concern. And also just for the general public to know how the state is dealing with these manufacturers, how much they're paying for the drugs, those sorts of things. Oklahoma has a history of uh, using incorrect or or, uh, questionable drugs for executions, right? Correct. As recently as 2015, they used the wrong drugs in executions, and those executions did not go well at all. And so it is a concern that the state, of course, the Department of Corrections says they've updated their protocol. They're not going to use the wrong drugs. There are several safeguards. But from the public's perspectives and the media's perspective, not having access to these records is um, concerning to, to many parties. Has anybody challenged the state secrecy provisions on that? Yeah. So last fall, Fred Hodera, an attorney from New York, filed a lawsuit seeking the Department of Corrections to compel these records. He filed his open records request, I believe, in May of 2020 and went through a year and a half of going back and forth with them. And eventually it went to a district judge in Oklahoma County. Um, so that's that's how that started. And what was the result? How did it wind up? So the judge ended up siding with the state saying Hodera didn't meet 
the necessary legal com- burden to compel the state to release those records. Mm. Um, why do courts generally rule on the side of corrections officials in those cases instead of the public? So corrections officials generally will argue that if there aren't these secrecy provisions, there can be no executions or it would be much more difficult to get the drugs for executions because these companies would be subject to scrutiny or protests or um, those sorts of things from anti-death penalty advocates. So courts uh, will generally side with the state so they can carry out what the you know, lower courts have ordered that the sentence of death and, you know, we need these secrecy provisions to carry out the sentences is, is ex- essentially what they're arguing. So if uh, the, the companies that were selling the lethal drugs to the state were to be revealed, they'd stop selling them to the state. And that's the, the crux of most of that. Correct. I mean, a recent example of that is in Alabama, I believe. Alabama is getting ready to use nitrogen gas for executions. They found a supplier. That supplier was revealed to the public, and then they pulled out. So that would be probably the concern of the state if these uh, secrecy provisions were to be rolled back. Gotcha. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, We've been talking to Keaton Ross on this segment of Long Story Short. Keaton covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. You can read his Justice Watch newsletter weekly and all his investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to education reporter Jennifer Palmer. Jennifer, you recently talked to Cindy Bird, Oklahoma's state auditor and inspector for Sunshine Week. What made you want to do a profile on Cindy? Talking with some of my colleagues at Oklahoma Watch uh, about a week or so ago, we were talking about how Cindy released the health department audit after the attorney general had said he would keep it confidential and would not release it publicly. And I thought that was very refreshing to hear a state official um, lean in toward transparency. And so what were you curious about when you went to talk to, to Cindy? I really wanted to know more about what drives her in her um, commitment to transparency and open records. And what did you learn when you talked to her? She talked to me about her very first job. Uh, fresh out of college, she got a job at the auditor's office. And her first job there was in a county uh, assessor's office. And she said she sat there for several weeks and saw homeowner after homeowner coming in to pay their county taxes. And it really drove home for her that these are hardworking people and the state, uh, the government is taking their money, um, you know, requiring them to pay. And um, it really made her realize that, you know, she works for the people and that she has this commitment to like spend every penny of their money um, and make sure that agencies are spending every penny um, accurately and, and effectively. Now, and on the education beat in particular, you rely on records frequently uh, for your work. How does the responsiveness of the auditor's office compare to that of some of the other state agencies you deal with? I'd say it's it's really good. Um, I did quite a bit of reporting on like the Epic audit. Um, they were really 
very fast and released, um, you know, not just the audit, but the work papers and video, you know, interviews, audio recordings. And that was very helpful in really understanding like what was going on behind the scenes uh, with, with Epic and the money. And, you know, they post every single audit to their website um, in a, you know, pretty easy to find manner. Although Cindy says they're even trying to improve on that. So as a result of the uh, transparency of of her office, uh, what's the public been able to learn? There were quite a few things in the EPIC audit that came to light. I mean, that that was the big one that drew a lot of uh, attention in the last um, couple of years. You know, some things in there um, weren't previously known that like a quarter of the funding that they received for public schools went into this private management company. I don't think the public really, you know, or, or even reporters like myself realized the extent of that until that audit came out. Uh, it really drove home their hands-off board. You know, the audit talked about how some of these large transactions were made without board approval. Um, And then, you know, health department audit that came out recently, that had some some eye-opening things as well. Um, You know, millions of dollars spent on goods that the state has never received. And what else does, does Auditor Bird have in the pipeline at the moment? A couple of big ones. Um, She's uh, her office is working on an audit of the Western Heights School District. Um, that school district has had a lot of issues with governance, and the state actually took it over last year. Um, so she's working on that. Um, there's an audit of the State Department of Education that Governor Stitt has asked for. So that is coming, and I believe there's uh, part two of the Epic audit. There were some records related to uh, student activity funds that her office had not yet gotten access to when the first audit came out. And so they're planning to do a part two. Now, last year in 2021, you you resolved to rely even more heavily on public records in your research. Uh, tell us how that went. I did. I made a commitment early last year to really um, up my game a little bit on my records requests. I uh, surpassed 50 in 2021, which was a, a new high for me. And um, some of those are, are now trickling in. So I'm getting to um, see some of those records that I worked really hard to get last year. And how about this year so far? I am on track to maybe meet that goal again. Um, I will need to step it up a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm definitely hoping to stay around 50 All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org, where you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.